they left that place and passed through Galilee. Jesus did not want anyone to know where they were because he was teaching his disciples. He said to them, The Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him, and after three days he will rise. But they did not understand what he meant and were afraid to ask him. They came to Capernaum. When he was in the house, he asked them, What were you arguing about on the road? But they kept quiet because on the way they had argued about who was the greatest. Sitting down, Jesus called the twelve and said, If anyone wants to be first, he must be the very last and the servant of all. He took a little child and had him stand among them. Taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but the one who sent me. Teacher, said John, we saw a man driving out demons in your name, and we told him to stop, because he was not one of us. Do not stop him, Jesus said. No one who does a miracle in my name in the next moment can any, say anything bad about me. For whoever is not against us is for us. I tell you the truth. Anyone who gives you a cup of water in my name because you belong to Christ will certainly not lose his reward. And if anyone causes one of these little ones who believe in me to, to sin, it would be better for him to be thrown into the sea with a large millstone tied around his neck. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life main than with two hands to go to hell where the fire never goes out. And if your foot causes you to sin, Cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good. But if it loses its saltiness, how can you make it salty again? Have salt in your souls and be at peace with each other. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Richard. Jesus doesn't pull any punches, does he? Let's pray as we study this very direct passage of Scripture tonight. Lord, we thank you for your word. We've just been singing about your word and Lord it is our prayer tonight that this word that you have before us that it might be transformative. Lord please give us eyes to see, ears to hear and hands that are empowered to serve you in this world. In Jesus name we pray. Amen. The gospel frees us from our addiction to ourselves. 
That was tweeted by Tony Merida, an American Baptist seminary professor, back in 2013. I like that. The gospel frees us from our addiction to ourselves. Before we're set free by Jesus, we're addicts. We're intoxicated by our own self-importance. We're interested in being served and not serving others. We're more focused on receiving than on giving, on getting our own way and on being the greatest, not the least. We're addicts, addicted to our own comfort, our own progression, our own greatness. And here in Mark chapter 9, we have some of Jesus' most radical teaching. Jesus, in this passage, totally turns the value system of our world upside down. And what he does is he totally transforms for us what greatness looks like. That's what we're going to look at tonight. We're going to look at what greatness in the kingdom of King Jesus looks like. And we're going to look at four characteristics from these verses. And the first one is obedience to the will of God. Mark sets the scene for us in verse 30. Jesus and his disciples pass through Galilee, heading down south on the way to Jerusalem. And Jesus continues to teach his disciples, telling them that the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him, and after three days he will rise. Jesus explains to his disciples here for the second time that he's going to be killed. He's trying to prepare them for what awaits in Jerusalem. But there's also more than just mere preparation going on here. There's actually real significance in the words that Jesus uses. Jesus says that he's going to be delivered into the hands of men. What's significant here is that the person who is doing the delivering is God. It's God himself. God is going to be the one who is going to deliver his son into the hands of men and allow him to be killed in Jerusalem. The same thought appears in Romans chapter 8 where Paul speaks of God and he says, He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all. This is a fundamental of the gospel, isn't it? It's a truth that we mustn't ever forget. Jesus' death on the cross was not plan B. It was always plan A. The cross wasn't a mistake. God very intentionally, very purposefully, delivered his son to death at the hands of the Jewish leaders. And as we've seen before, our friends, the dear old disciples, did not understand what he meant and were afraid to ask him about it. Jesus' words are, are pretty clear, aren't they? But despite the clarity with which Jesus is speaking, the disciples 
still don't get it. We've seen this again and again as we've walked through Mark, haven't we? The disciples don't have any room for a suffering Messiah in their worldview. A crucified Christ just doesn't fit into, into their theology. As, as Richard mentioned two weeks ago after the sermon, they don't see yet that the glorious Son of Man in Daniel 7 is the same person as the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. It actually wouldn't come together for them until after Jesus' death and resurrection. But Jesus, of course, he knew the Father's mission. He knew what the plan was, and it led to Calvary and death on a cross. He knew that his suffering was necessary to ransom us from our sin. That's why Philippians says that Jesus was obedient to death, even death on a cross. That's the first mark of greatness in the kingdom of King Jesus. Obedience, despite the cost, despite what it might mean to the will of the Father. And the second is service of others. Do you remember thinking about what you wanted to be when you grew up as a child? What did you want to be? Anyone have those dreams? No? A farmer? A nurse? Anything else? A teacher? Sorry, Richard? A knight. A knight. There you go. Wow. Wasn't expecting that one. Superman. Superman. You're aiming low, Paul. That's good. Fantastic. When you... A push bike, a push bike rider. Oh, George, you needed to lift your height. Your sight, brother. Now, when you think about most of those jobs, there's something common about them, isn't there? They're generally quite high-powered or influential positions. Kids generally want to be prime ministers or successful business people. Roles and jobs where you have positions of power and influence and status. I know from talking to our four-year-old, generally when you're kids, you don't want to be a servant, do you? You want to be in a position where you're going to be served. Being a servant just doesn't come naturally to us. And the disciples demonstrate that very clearly to us in the next scene. As they travel along the road to Capernaum, they get into, well, what we might politely call a discussion. They're discussing who amongst them is the greatest. You can just imagine the scene, can't you? Maybe some people talk about the ministry success that they've had. Remember how they got sent out two by two? And some are talking about how they, they healed leprosy or diseases. Maybe Peter, James and John piped up saying, hey guys, but we were with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. You can kind of imagine how the conversation would go, can't you? And Jesus, of course, knows what's going on. And so when they enter the house, which we think is the house of Peter's mother-in-law, Jesus asks them, guys, what were you arguing about? And interestingly enough, despite the fact they'd all been really vocal on the road, now they're suddenly very, very quiet. They're embarrassed. They don't know what to say. Clearly, Despite Jesus' teaching 
about dying to yourself, sacrificing your life for the service of others, they still haven't quite got it. They still want to be sovereigns, not servants. They still don't quite yet understand what it means to follow King Jesus. Let's be honest though. It's easy for us to fall into the same trap too, isn't it? To want to be elevated above others, to be recognised for the gifts that we have. And it can be easy when we come to a text like this to get a bit smug and to think to, think to yourself, oh, we wouldn't do that today. We're so much better than the disciples. So, just to avoid that happening, let's take a bit of a pride test now. Just answer each of these questions in your head. Does it matter to me if I get recognition for what I do? Do titles pump me up? Leader, captain, deacon. Is popularity crucial to my self-worth? Do I hate it when others have the temerity to disagree with me? Do I shun those who disagree with me or upset me? Do I think that I have something valuable to contribute on almost every topic? Let's be honest, I think... For many of us, the answer to some, if not all of those questions is yes. Pride and that desire to be elevated is something that we all face each day, isn't it? And it's something that only by the power of the Spirit can we suppress and overcome to the glory of God. This is as much for us as it was for the disciples. And Jesus uses this as an opportunity to teach the disciples, to teach them a very fundamental lesson about what greatness looks like in the eyes of God. You might have noticed something a little bit unusual. Jesus sits down here in this scene. You see, in the first century, when someone spoke, when someone had something to contribute, they didn't stand up like we do in our churches today. What they actually did was sit down and their disciples and students would sit on the floor around them. And so, when Jesus sits down here, he's signalling to us that what he's going to say is important, it's of significance. And he tells them, anyone who wants to be first must be the very last and the servant of all. Those words are quite familiar to us, aren't they? But we need to grasp the depth of what Jesus is actually saying here. If you want to be first, you don't have to try to aim for the middle of the table. No, you must be the very last and the servant of not just those you like, not just those who are going to pay you back, but all. In saying this, Jesus doesn't, he doesn't reject greatness. What he does is he redefines it. He says that there is a position that each of us should be aspiring to. There is a posture that is glorious in the eyes of God. It's that of a servant. 
Jesus just turns those aspirations that we had on their head, doesn't he? We all want to be significant. We all want to win. But Jesus says, if you want your life to count, you must be a servant. True greatness in my kingdom is service. Let me ask you, do you only serve those who can pay you back? Do you only minister in areas in the church that are prominent, where your glory is for all to see? Is cleaning the toilets or packing up beneath you? Maybe better suited to someone who doesn't have the outrageous, amazing talents that you do. When I mentioned during the announcements, we laugh, but when I mentioned during the announcements that we have a need to clean this place and that there's enough room on the roster for all of us here in this room, what did you think? Did you think to yourself, I haven't got time. I'm involved in other ministries. I'm a deacon. Oh, God forbid, I'm a pastor. I'm too busy for that kind of work. Let's be honest. What's going on in our hearts? No, Jesus says, no, true greatness in my kingdom is in service. It's exactly what Jesus models for us in the upper room, isn't it? As he's preparing to die, no one amongst the disciples wanted to lower themselves and wash the feet of their friends and colleagues. So Jesus, the incarnate Son of God, we just saw his glory in the transfiguration a couple of weeks ago. That Jesus, the incarnate Son of God, took on the posture of a servant and washed the dirt and the grime and the dung off his disciples' feet. He's our model. Back here in Capernaum, Jesus also illustrates what he's saying. Verse 36. He took a little child whom he placed among them. Taking the child in his arms, he said to them, Whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but the one who sent me. These days we tend to think of children as pretty adorable, don't we? We tend to fuss all over them and say how beautiful they are, even the slightly ugly ones. Because let's be honest, some babies do look a bit unusual. (laughs) We tend to, to take care of our kids and prize them above all else. But the fact is, is that in the first century when Jesus spoke, that wasn't necessarily the case. One out of every two children was not going to make the age of five. And children were not really viewed as significant until it was likely that they were going to survive. Children were a great example of the last and the least. And so Jesus brings this child before the disciples and says, if you receive one of these, the last, the least in our society, you're receiving me. No, actually more than that, you're receiving the Father who sent me. Welcome the least, those who have no standing in the world, and you welcome me. Welcome the least. Children. 
the homeless, the mentally ill, the disabled, the aged. Welcome those who are overlooked by the world. They might not thank you. They're likely to be hard work. But welcome them. And you welcome me. This is as jarring to us today as it was in the first century to the disciples, isn't it? Die to yourselves. Serve others. Care for those that no one else cares for. The true disciple will pay most attention to those who count least in the estimation of the world. The true disciple won't say they should have saved. They should be providing for themselves. They should be getting themselves back up on their feet or moving on. No, we pay attention to those who are the last and the least. Let me ask you, how do you go with this? Do you walk past people? Or do you minister to them in Jesus' name? When you walk past that homeless person at Central Station tomorrow morning, will you stop and speak to them? Bless them? Maybe offer to buy them a meal? Or will you walk past pretending that you don't see them? When you see someone who is upset at church or at work, do you actively avoid them? Because you're very, very busy and very important and you can't possibly take on some of the challenges that they're facing. Or let me be really direct. When someone comes along to our church who looks like they're struggling, maybe with drug dependency or alcoholism or homelessness, when you see them at morning tea or at supper, be honest, do you actively avoid them? Do you try to make sure that you don't speak to them? Do you, do you inwardly have a sigh of relief when someone else is speaking to them so that you don't have to? Or do you embrace them and love them in the name of Jesus? It's challenging, isn't it? Or is it just me that's challenged by this? I think Jesus meant it to be pretty confronting and pretty challenging. And I suspect all of us have got some room for repentance here. Serving others, that's the second mark of greatness. Let's look at the third. Unity with other believers. We Christians can be pretty tribal. If you've been in churches for a while, you, you might have noticed that. We tend to know what we believe and hold to it pretty firmly and don't have a lot of time sometimes for people who disagree with us. And the disciples, and particularly John, are about to learn here that the kingdom is much bigger than they think. The kingdom of King Jesus is bigger than their own experience. So large, in fact, and this is controversial even today, that anyone who is for Christ is with us. In verse 38, John comes across a man who's Casting out demons. Interestingly enough, if you remember back just the last week, casting out demons was a task that the disciples themselves were having some problems with. But this man is casting out demons and he's doing so successfully in the name of Jesus. The disciples don't know this man. 
Obviously, he wasn't part of their little inner group. And so, as verse 38 tells us, they tried to stop him because he was not following us. I've used the ESV translation there because that really captures what's going on here. John's words are depressingly revealing. John wants Jesus to stop the man because he was not following, not you, Jesus, not following us. He wasn't following the disciples. John is jealous because someone else is having ministry success in Jesus' name. John is not concerned by what this man is doing. He's concerned that this man was not part of the in crowd, not part of the right group. We don't know quite what John's problem was. Maybe he hadn't been exposed to enough of Jesus' teaching to to have his training wheels off. Maybe he, he came from the synagogue in the other part of town. Whatever it is, the heart of the issue is clear. This guy is not one of us. So stop him, Jesus! If John expected a pat on the back from Jesus here, he's sadly mistaken. In verses 39 to 40, Jesus says, Do not stop him, for no one who does a miracle in my name can in the next moment say anything bad about me. For whoever is not against us is for us. Jesus reminds John that there are disciples outside of his little group. They're doing miracles in his name and they shouldn't be hindered. They should be helped. Don't try to restrain him, John. Encourage him. Rejoice in him and through him. In Philippians chapter 1, the the Apostle Paul talks about this very thing, doesn't he? We looked at that last year, where he says, I'm not concerned about the motives of those who are preaching Christ, whether it's out of envy or rivalry, others out of goodwill, it doesn't matter. The important thing is that Christ is being preached, and for that reason I'm going to rejoice. My friends, this might come as a shock shock to you, but we Baptists are not the only true believers. Now, I know that you might not be so bold as to actually say that, but I wonder sometimes, do we practically believe it? Please don't get me wrong. I love being a Baptist. But our particular interpretation of the scripture does not make us spiritually superior to others. Maybe you know some people like this, but I know some people who don't tolerate even the smallest deviation in their theology. It might come to a contested matter, a secondary matter on things like charismatic gifts or church membership or baptism. But the moment you differ from them in any way, shape or form, they treat you as an unbeliever. My friends, if someone is a genuine follower of the Lord Jesus, they are our brother and sister. And we are on the same team. We are on the team of King Jesus. We don't have to condone every single thing that happens at another church to celebrate what God is doing through them. I love what Warren Wearsby says. It never ceases to amaze me how God blesses those 
I don't agree with. I like that. Who would have thought God can even work through those that we don't agree with? It's an important lesson in church unity that Jesus just throws in here, doesn't it? But unity with other believers is a key mark of greatness in Jesus' kingdom. And a final characteristic, being ruthless with sin. Those who are great in the kingdom of King Jesus are ruthless with sin. You might have heard the story of Aaron Ralston, which was made into a movie a few years back. Now let me warn you, if you're a little bit queasy, just tune out for the next 30 seconds or so. On April 26, 2003, Aaron Ralston was hiking alone through Blue John Canyon in eastern Utah. As he was descending down a canyon, a 360-kilogram boulder dislodged, fell down on him, pinned him to the side of the canyon, and pinned his right forearm against the canyon wall. Aaron had failed in the first rule of hiking and adventuring. He hadn't told anyone else where he was going. So no one knew where he was, and no one was going to look for him. If he didn't get out himself, he was done for. After being trapped there, pinned against the canyon wall for five days and seven hours, he used the pocket knife that he had to cut off his forearm and get free. As if that wasn't gutsy enough, he then rappelled a further 70 feet down the canyon wall and walked for three hours until he was rescued. Incredible. It's tough to lose a limb, to go through the rest of his years with that permanent reminder. But he had no alternative, did he? It was either lose a limb or die. And that's the choice that Jesus talks about with his disciples here. Now, it is spiritual, not physical amputation we're talking about, but the point is the same. And Aaron's story very graphically, but very powerfully illustrates the directness and the power of what Jesus is talking about here. We need to take radical action when it comes to sin. Verse 42. If anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for them if a large millstone were hung around their neck and they were thrown into the sea. That's not really meek and mild, Jesus, is it? It's pretty direct, pretty tough, pretty serious. Now, unlike in our previous scene, little ones here isn't children, but as Jesus says, those who believe in him, our brothers and sisters in Christ. And here Jesus cautions us against putting a stumbling block something that will cause a brother or sister in Christ to sin in front of them. We are to take personal responsibility for ensuring that we don't place a stumbling block in front of our fellow Christians. I don't know about you, but I'm truly grieved when I hear about some Christians using their liberty to put other Christians into situations where they are likely to fall into sin, becoming a stumbling block for a fellow believer. 
our actions and our attitudes really do affect our family in Christ. And we need to make sure that we're not causing them to sin. Because as Jesus says here, if you cause just one person who believes in him to stumble, it would be better to go get a pair of cement shoes and go for a swim. This is serious because of what's at stake. It's not just the sin of others that we need to be concerned with, though. In verses 43 to 47, Jesus launches into three powerful hyperboles to warn us of the dangers of sin, not just to others, but to ourselves. Now, this, now look, this is hyperbole, okay, or as Julia Gillard said, hyperbole. Hyperbole, if you can remember back to like year seven English, they're exaggerated statements that are designed to cause an effect, to create a response. We do it all the time. You might say, I'm so hungry I could eat a horse, or this suitcase weighs a ton. Now, of course, neither of those things are true, unless you really like horse meat, but the point gets across. Now, We can be sure Jesus' words aren't to be taken literally, in case you're wondering, because elsewhere God forbids bodily mutilation. But Jesus uses hyperbole here to show us how seriously we should take our sin. And I half wonder if he so exaggerates this because we're not that good at taking our own sin seriously. Let me read these verses, verses 43 to 47. If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands to go into hell where the fire never goes out. And if your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than have two feet and be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to stumble, well, pluck it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell. You haven't got to be a brain surgeon to know that our eyes represent what we see, our hands what we do, and our feet where we go. Jesus is saying that we need to be all-encompassing in our attitude towards sin. As important as eyes and feet and hands are for our bodies, it's better to lose them than to face the eternal judgment of hell. Jesus challenges us here. None of us have any trouble at all pointing out the sin of others. But, I wonder, are we quite as ruthless when it comes to our own sin? The great John Stott has some practical advice as to how we can apply this and It's a long quote, but it's gold, so I'm going to read it all. John says this, To obey this command of Jesus will involve, for many of us, a certain maiming. We shall have to eliminate from our lives certain things, which, though some may be innocent of themselves, either are or could easily become sources of temptation. In Jesus' own metaphorical language, we may find ourselves without eyes, hands or feet. That is, we shall deliberately decline to read certain literature, see certain films, 
visit certain exhibitions, I'm going to add, visit certain websites, go to certain clubs and pubs, wherever. Back to John. If we do this, we shall be regarded by some of our contemporaries as narrow-minded, untaught Philistines. What? They will say to us incredulously, you've not read such or such a book? You've not seen such or such a film? Why, you're not educated, man. They may be right. We may have to become culturally maimed in order to preserve our purity. The only question is whether for the sake of this gain we are willing to bear that loss and endure that ridicule. Jesus was quite clear about it, John continues. It is better to lose one member and enter true life maimed than to retain our whole body and go to hell. It is better to forego some experiences this life offers in order to enter the life, which is life indeed. Let me read that again. It is better to forego some experiences this life offers in order to enter the life, which is true life indeed. It's better to accept some cultural amputation in this world than risk final destruction in the next. Of course, this teaching runs counter to modern standards of permissiveness. Don't we know that? But it is based on the principle that eternity is more important than time and purity than culture and that any sacrifice is worthwhile in this life if it is necessary to ensure our entry into the next. My friends, we can't play around with sin. Jesus is very, very clear. We can't treat it lightly. We need to get serious. Jesus gives us a graphic illustration of what dealing with sin looks like. We're to put it to death. We're to cut it off. We're to leave it back in that canyon. Because the consequences of not doing so are severe and are unending. If we don't pursue holiness and put sin to death, we are in danger of hell. Those aren't my words. Those are Jesus' words. We've just read them twice. Now, please see, Jesus isn't saying that we need to be entirely free of all sin in order to enter heaven. If that were the case, no one would ever be in his presence forever. He's not saying that we're going to reach perfection this side of heaven. But what he is saying is that true faith, the faith of a true believer, is a fighting faith. It fights sin and it pursues purity at all costs. At all costs. I wonder, what practical action do you, do I need to take tonight in order to put sin to death? Do we need to stop meeting with particular individuals alone? As I've often said to the boys in Boys Brigade, nothing good happens in a car late at night when you're alone with someone from the opposite sex. Do you need to remove yourself from particular friendships, particular relationships, 
do you need to maybe turn off the internet in your house for a while? We need to pursue purity. Jesus is asking us here, are you pursuing greatness in the eyes of the world or in the eyes of God? Are you living a truly great or a mediocre Christian life? Jesus has shown us here tonight in a direct, jarring, countercultural way what true greatness looks like. It's obedience to the will of God. Reading, studying the word of God, taking it seriously and applying it in our lives and following in the footsteps of Jesus no matter where he calls us to go. Serving others for the glory of God and their good, not our own status or our own recognition. Being unified in the body, rejoicing in what God is doing through others, even if we might disagree a little. And killing sin and pursuing purity. That's greatness. May we, by God's strength, truly pursue greatness in the eyes of King Jesus every day.